kind of played that role. And so rather than playing that role, she eventually, so that all of the, uh, you know, all the men got nervous. Well, our wives aren't going to obey us anymore. And so what are you going to do about that king? And so he put her away and there was a big beauty contest and Hadassah, her Persian name being Esther, uh, was chosen a Jewish girl. Her identity, Mordecai said, look, you don't, don't tell them you're Jewish. But she was chosen of all the beautiful virgins in the land to be the next queen Artaxerxes, God put her in a place of influence. We can talk and discuss the ethics, the biblical ethics behind all of that. Should Mordecai have advised this? Should he have advised that? Should she have gone along with this? Should she have gone along with that? Whatever happened, though, ultimately came down to this chapter 4 passage where she was sovereignly in position. See, when you work through, you see that Mordecai, the one who had been her um, legal guardian, the Bible says, uh, was involved in overhearing an assassination plot on the king. So he told Esther, she actually spoke to the king. The king's life was saved. Mordecai was recognized for that. So he was able to stay kind of at the king's gates. And, and Esther was able to get counsel from Mordecai from time to time until Haman enters the story in chapter 3. And I'm giving you just a quick synopsis of all this. Haman is a, a great picture of dramatic irony, the one who would eventually hang from the, uh, the, the gallows that he had put in place for Esther, or for, I'm sorry, Mordecai, and, and so, or really he wanted to annihilate the whole Jewish race, right? Haman, we're told, was an Agagite. He was from the line of King Agag, who was an Amalekite, and I know you hear all these ites, you know, flashlights, mosquito bites, and porch lights, and all that in the Old Testament, but, but what that means is, remember when King Saul was told to slay the Amalekites, and and he would not even execute King Agag. He, he was disobedient as a result of that. That was going to be a thorn in the flesh of Israel for many years to come. The Amalekites represent in the Old Testament the battle that we have with our flesh. And we, we don't put to death the sins of our flesh and the desires and the appetites of our flesh. We don't put those things to death. They come back to haunt us later. And so here's Haman from that lineage. Hates the Jewish people. And through his plot, through his working things and manipulating things in his own favor, comes to a place where he's kind of worshipped. And everybody's got to bow down to him except for Mordecai, who's going to obey the commandments of God and worship the Lord God alone. We're not to worship human governments and human institutions. We're to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And he is to be our source and to be our strength. And so Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And so he was able to put things in place so that the Jews could be annihilated if they were not obedient. So when this was put into place, the, the moment became urgent for somebody to take a stand. And God had strategically, sovereignly placed Esther in a position of influence. She was a queen who could come before the king and take a stand. And she had to explain to Mordecai that there was one problem with that, and that's that if she came before him uninvited, if anybody came before the king uninvited, she hadn't been invited in over 30 days, then they could be killed, they could be beheaded on the spot, and so it would take great courage. Unless he extended the scepter and saved their lives, the law said they would be executed at that very moment. So what follows all of that leads to a crisis of a courageous stand. An increasingly 
secular government. And yet, all that parallels where we are today, seemingly increasing secular government, but hostile toward the people of God, in many ways, parallels where we are today. And yet, there was a window of opportunity for somebody to take a stand. Esther. A window of opportunity for somebody to take a stand. A a, a moment of religious freedom for somebody to, to do something, but it would be risky. And today, I believe God's given us a window of opportunity, and I believe he wants us to take a stand in such a time as this. Give you three quick principles, and we're done. The first one, it's time, such a time as this, it's time to be cognizant of the fact of our opposition. I've said again and again through the study of Ezra that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Don't point your fingers at people. It's, it's the enemy, it's the devil, it's the demonic realm behind people. But he'll use people. And so in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, you see the opposition at work. It says, Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation Their laws are different from everyone else's so that they defy the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Isn't it interesting? It was supposed to be an increasingly secular society, but those who would preach tolerance became the most intolerant of the people of God. And we're seeing that in the world today, that there were people for decades in this nation saying, we've got to be more tolerant, got to be more tolerant. Why don't the Christians become more tolerant? And then once they got a foot in the door, once they had a foothold on this land, once they had leverage in this nation, they became the most intolerant people saying, listen, but there's a group of people, they're known as Christians. Sometimes specifically they would say evangelical Christians. And we can't tolerate that anymore. We hear it again and again. He says, if the king approves, let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction. And I'll pay 375 tons of silver, in other words, everything I confiscate from the Jews, to the accounts accounts for the deposit, the royal treasury. It's going to make you some money. It became all about money, didn't it? You know, those who preach tolerance can be the most intolerant in our land. There are many in positions of influence that quite honestly hate the church. We think of the the biggest influence in our culture today probably isn't Washington. Actually, it's probably Hollywood. (laughs) It's probably Hollywood. A Messianic Jew was writing recently in a column I read about um, movie after movie, and, and the Hollywood culture is attacking the church, and he was able to name dozens of movies that were the political agenda behind those movies, many of them you may have seen, some of them may have had some subtleties you didn't pick up on, but the agenda was to cast doubt on the message of the gospel and to ultimately make fun of the church of the living God. And so this Messianic Jew wrote, he said, these are five reasons that I see as I dissect these movies, here are five reasons that they are attacking the church. Number one, their love for sexual liberation. Number two, A live-for-the-moment ethos. The church keeps us from living for the moment because they keep reminding us that there's an eternity, that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and we don't want to hear that. And so the the live-for-the-moment ethos is something that they are standing against. There's then the religion of self. We might call it humanism, but it's the religion of self and promoting self. And then he said, now it's become gender sameness. 
while the Bible is saying in the beginning God created them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, male and female, marriage being for one man, one woman for a lifetime. They hate that. They hate that message, and our culture despises that message, and there are political conservatives that will even not even publicly embrace that message anymore. And it's going to get worse. He, he also mentions uh, increasing secularism like we see here. No, there's nothing new under the sun like we see in the book of Esther. We can talk about all these things, and, and, and you say, well, what's next? I, I saw where someone reported just this weekend that um, Miley Cyrus, remember Hannah Montana, the little, girl, little girls used to watch? Miley Cyrus, uh, she came out last year saying that uh, she was sexless, that uh, you know she wasn't male or female, she was on a moving slide between the two. I don't know where she gets that, but uh, now she's saying she's all for a speciesless society. Well, that's just getting scary, folks. And there are many who buy it hook, line, and sinker. It does come from Washington as well. It comes from the political realm as well. In 2015, Hillary Clinton was speaking at a Women in the World conference and said that there was a deep-seated cultural code. There, there were religious beliefs that have to be changed. Saying things that later Judge Alito would point out, would stamp out every vestige of dissent against what's going on in the world from the church. In other words, the goal seemed to be, among many, even in Washington, to stamp out the message of the church. And so we need to wake up and realize what's going on around us. And we need to say, Lord, as we sang a moment ago, let revival begin in me and allow me to make a difference because this world is changing rapidly and I want to be somebody who takes a stand. That should move me, secondly, to a time to be committed to the faith in spite of opposition. Look at chapter 4 with me. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that occurred, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes. See, he didn't go point his fingers in the government's face to start with. He went to the middle of the city, he cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate, there was a great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, they wept, they lamented, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. That sign of mourning, that sign of brokenness. If judgment begins at the house of the Lord, then it's the church that's got to say, we've got to be a broken people before God. We've got to be a people who cry out on behalf of our nation and our world because we're God's covenant people. We're the ones who have access to the very throne of grace. We're the ones that Jude is telling in Jude 3 to earnestly contend for the faith that Peter would say, Listen, be ready to give a defense, an answer, an apologetic. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. And be committed to the faith once for all. Delivered to the saints in the midst of opposition. When all of that was written in the New Testament, when Jude and Peter and others wrote about taking a stand in the face of opposition, they could not imagine a world without opposition. And I know as Americans we get frustrated. We're like, man, it just seems like... At a time in history, they're turning against the church. 
the New Testament disciples couldn't imagine a world that wasn't contrary to the message of the cross and the message of the gospel. It was a confrontational message. And so many times as a church, when it comes uh, election time, we argue that we should be focused on a big God rather than big government. But then in our practical daily living, we act like government's got to be our source and the answer to all our problems. And we cease to spend time in prayer and fasting and seeking God's face for an awakening in our hearts, for revival in our families. We're not doing a lot to make sure our kids are walking with God and our grandkids are walking with God. And we point our fingers at government like it's their responsibility. And it's ours. We're the ones that have to be broken. It doesn't mean we don't take a public stand, and we do, and we'll point that out. But our greatest presidents, and some were more religious than others, recognize that there was a sovereign God at work in spite of what was going on among the opposition in the world. You go all the way back to Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation where he recognized it was by divine providence that this nation was even here. You, you can walk, I remember uh, last fall, last winter, Kent and I were there at the Lincoln Memorial, and I said, man, Kent, I just want you to read those speeches. And his second inaugural address went again and again and again. He speaks of God's sovereignty and divine providence. We've got to be committed to that faith in the face of opposition. Mordecai wanted Esther to in intervene. And she explained, listen, I haven't been summoned, and if I'm not summoned and I intervene, I can be killed. And that's when he set back the reply that we read just a moment ago. If you keep silent, at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your house will be destroyed but who knows, perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a time to be committed to the face, faith in the face of opposition, to be true to your faith. And notice here in the text, for her to be true to her faith was to be true to the family. I believe the family is the foundational unit in society. And if we're true to the faith, we're going to be true to our family, and we're going to see God's hedge and hand of protection around us. And finally, it's a time to be courageous in the face of opposition. Not, not just to the faith in spite of opposition, but be courageous in the face of opposition. For such a time as this, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, go and assemble, this is Esther speaking, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night and day. And my female servants will also fast in the same way. And after that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. Remember what the apostles said in the book of Acts? We have to obey God rather than man. There is a place for civil disobedience. Not for violence, but for civil disobedience where we say, if we die, we die. That's what she says. If I perish, I perish. In other words, when God's laws are contradicted by man's laws, we take a stand for God's laws. We do so peacefully. We do so lovingly. But we do so firmly and unapologetically. And we take a stand for truth. And it takes courage to say that. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai went and did everything that Esther had ordered him. She would have courage to earnestly 
contend for the faith. Notice that her defensive posture of commitment became an offensive posture of courage when it came down to a time of confrontation. Can I say something? I love the Amish people. I really do. And those of you who have visited Amish country or been around that region, you're like, man, these are some of the most devout, consecrated, praying people that you've ever been around in your life. But have you ever wondered why our government, have you ever wondered why Hollywood and so many others aren't too intimidated by the Amish people? You ever wondered why they're not attacking them and trying to annihilate them and do away with them? It's because the Amish people are satisfied to stay in remote, isolated locations and not get involved and confront the sins of the world face to face. The reason they don't like the modern evangelical is because you choose, while you choose not to be of the world, you choose to be in the world, you choose to be salt and light, you desire to make a difference, you stand for the cause of Christ, you say, Thus saith the Lord, you tell people, Hey, the Bible says, And when you begin to say that in your school and you begin to say that in your workplace and you begin to say that in places of government, then people get nervous, they get offended and say, listen, why don't you keep that message in the walls of your church if you would isolate yourselves as a community somewhere, if you would kind of hide out and do your own thing, we would be okay with you. But you keep saying that this is the truth of all people and that kind of bothers us. That's what the world is saying today. And and it takes courage to stand and say, Friend, abortion stops a beating heart. Uh, Abortion stops a beating heart, and God's judgment will be on a nation that does not defend the lives of the unborn. They don't want to hear that it's wrong. We have to do so boldly, and we have to do so lovingly, knowing that there are many victims of this sin. It takes courage to say marriage is a sacred covenant between one man and one woman that God created them, male and female. There is a difference in that they are to be united in marriage and sexual activity is to take place in that context and only in that context. It takes courage to say those things today in our world, to our government, in our public schools. It takes courage to say that with the people that we live and work around. In this world, you you could be called a bigot, unloving, and we've got to speak the truth in love, but we've got to speak the truth nonetheless, and it takes courage to do that. And there are fewer and fewer pastors who will stand today and say, listen, I'm called to marry one man to one woman, and I'll do no other weddings. I appreciate those of, uh, even in our local community here, public servants who have refused, who have said, I will do no weddings if I have to do a wedding that dishonors God in such a way. God confronts us in those areas. And in his record, he judged nations, whether they were in covenant relationship or not, as his created people, he judged nations who didn't honor his word. And then it takes courage to say, as Esther did, basically, what she say? (laughs) Give me liberty or give me death. That's what it boiled down to. It takes more courage to leverage that liberty. To say, I have an audience with the king and it may cost me my life. You know the rest of her story. The king extended the scepter. 
she, was, she did not lose her life. She leveraged that influence, and it made a difference in a secular society to promote religious freedom so the Jews could continue to worship God and continue to make their way back toward their promised land. And it's a beautiful story. And it would have been a tragedy if she had remained silent, but it's a greater tragedy today that while we have this window of opportunity, while we have the freedom to stand and proclaim the word of God without fear of attack, that there are preachers across this nation today that will either not even open this book or they will open it and so water it down that there won't be any truth left in it by the time they finish speaking. That's a greater tragedy. The greater tragedy is you have a window of opportunity that God has strategically placed you in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. God has strategically placed you there to be salt and light for Him. And if we remain silent, even though we have these freedoms, if we remain silent, that becomes a greater tragedy. Our silence speaks louder than all the noise the enemy can make. And so we've got to realize it's time for such a time as this to be courageous. And I pray for every one of you. And I am so excited to live in a land where we still have these freedoms, even though there are those who are attacking them. We have a window of opportunity. I'm glad to live in Madison County, Georgia, where I can stand and preach this word. And I believe the law enforcement that's here would protect my right to do so. Several other fellows would too. I believe Joey's got my back over here as well. It may not always be the case in this land. We've got a window of opportunity. We've got to stay committed. We've got to stay courageous. We've got to speak the truth in love. Point people to Jesus Christ. And as Christians, just as they were praying and fasting in our brokenness, we've got to come before God on behalf of our families, on behalf of our churches, on behalf of our communities. And see, when the man of God is right with God and he leads his family to be right with God and the family impacts the church and the church experiences revival, the, the revival touches a community, a community shapes a county, that county touches a state, and the state makes a difference in their nation. Where did it start? starts with a man of God who will be obedient to the Word of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And Father, we thank you for your unchanging Word. We thank you for the story of a courageous girl named Esther that you placed in a place of influence. And I realize that every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place have, have been strategically placed by the grace of God. Lord, help us to stand courageous in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.